Thank you for listening. Visit www.cityhillglobal.com to find out more about City Hill Church. Good morning, everyone, again. We've been continuing uh, our series on uh, Jonah. And I'd like to say that today we are changing a little bit in that we're not going to be focusing on Jonah. Today we're going to be focusing on something very different. Over the last, I'll say, probably eight months, one of the things that we do as the leadership is we sit down and we talk about lots of things. That's what leadership meetings look like. People sit down and talk for hours and hours. I remember Chris saying one, one of the meetings, he said, how long do you think this meeting is going to be? I said, maybe about an hour. And he looked at me thinking, that's definitely not going to happen. Because you sit there and you discuss and you discuss. And one of the things that we have been discussing, at least for a while now, has been the role of women which is something I'm going to bring to you today. I do understand and see and recognize that there are some churches that are far ahead of us in terms of their clarity and their explanation on this, but we are playing or seem to be playing catch-up in many different ways. And one of the things we did was we came together and we said, we're going to come together in a room and we're going to sit down and we're going to open the Bible and we're going to begin to rediscover what it is as a community as a team that we believe. And we sat down and we discussed, I think it probably was one of the most robust discussions I've ever actually engaged in. Very helpful, very enthusiastic, very um, healthy, that we left that room smiling, laughing, and it was such an incredible time. But one of the things we did was we explained and openly shared our positions on this issue. And having done that, I decided, as I'm leading the team, that one of my responsibilities is to not just make decisions here, especially big decisions, but to involve others from outside who, are, um, who have authority over us who can speak into that. So uh, what I did was I left and I said... Um, I would love the team to sit down with uh, someone with apostolic authority, and uh, there was Steve Oliver who sat with the team to discuss this issue. And I didn't want to be in the room because I didn't want to cloud the issue at that point in time. And then later on, I came back and just to get feedback on how that went, and uh, it went really well, and it was a journey that we've been in for, on, on for a long time, at least about eight months. So what I then did straight after that was I took the opportunity to put together um, thoughts on, on paper and having looked at the scriptures, having searched the scriptures um, afresh. I have to say, in terms of my background, that I became a Christian in our family of churches we call New Frontiers. And when I became a Christian, there are certain things that I never really tried to go back to Scripture afresh and refresh my thinking and think them through for myself. But what I did was I'll say, this is what we believe, and that's what we believe, and that's what we believe, because... Terry Virgo says this, that person says this, that's what we believe. But it's always important, and even if I can just say this to all of us, it's always important that we always go back to the text. We go back to Scripture, we ask the relevant questions, we look at the Scriptures again and again and again, that we submit under the authority of Scripture and not just do what we feel we would love to do. 
And I would have to say that even as we were discussing, it wasn't just about feelings or what we've always been taught. It was the fact that we were going back to the text and asking the scripture to speak to us, to educate us, to change our thinking, to change our cultural uh, worldviews, and to help us to come under the authority of scripture. So I put together a, 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 a paper which I submitted to the leadership, and I said, having gone through everything that we've gone through, having discussed everything that we've, we have been discussing, this is where I sit at the moment. And I would love to give you and all of us at least a few months to sit down and to go back on your own to reread this and reread it and take the Bible and put it here and read it based on what we've discussed and see if there's anything here that you feel very strongly that you disagree or you feel is unbiblical or you feel is wrong. And then when you've done that, let's come together again and let's really think it through because we don't want to just treat this almost as though it's just a, a, a shallow doctrinal issue. It is a very important issue. So I, I, I sent this across, and then a, a few months later, I came back to the leaders and said, where are we on the same page? And then I said, based on our, the decision that we make now, I will then bring everything before the church. That's why I'm here today to bring what we think as a leadership before the church. Is that okay? Great. But what I'll be focusing on in particular here is the role of women particularly in relation to the teaching and the preaching of the Word. But I will draw a bit of background based on the life of Jesus as well as, or the ministry of Jesus as well as the ministry of Paul. But what I want to do today, please bear with me and listen very carefully, because I won't just be, I'm not preaching today, I'm just going to really read and go through what is on paper here. Is that okay? And please pay enough attention. Women in ministry. Women in Jesus' time and ministry, in the first century, Eastern culture was very patriarchal. And that is, it was male-dominated. Society, marriage, property ownership was geared towards male-centered world. But you look at Luke 8, when you read when Luke is recording about Jesus, particularly verse 1 till verse 3, where he, Luke tells us that Jesus had traveling female disciples in his ministry, like Mary Magdalene, like Joanna and Susanna, as well as, of course, male discipleship. What is new in this passage is not male discipleship, but female discipleship, something that was never there in the culture of the day. Before Jesus, there seems to be no evidence of female disciples up to that point. Now, during the time of Paul, things begin to unravel as well. Let's look at Paul's letters, or what you call Paul's corpus, which means Paul's body of material, and how Paul begins to work these things through as he goes on. Particularly his language in its cultural context. Remember, we are still, even at this time, dealing with a very patriarchal society and with its hierarchical structure. So we need to look at what Paul says and how the gospel speaks into this context. 
it would seem in Paul's ministry context, women were allowed to have a variety of roles and not simply as mothers and wives. Let's begin here. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that a woman is not obliged to remarry if her husband dies. She can remain single for the sake of Christ, or if she is going to remarry, she should remarry in the Lord. Paul speaks of the grace gift for some to be single and for some to marry in the Lord, which is an option and a decision that in the past was never there. Paul goes on to say, the body of the husband belongs to the wife just as the body of the wife belongs to the husband. Paul here seems to be bringing something revolutionary through this statement, something new in the first century, that there's mutual accountability that is introduced in marriage. Whereas before this time, women would have been accountable to men and their bodies as well, but a woman had less or no say to a man's body. Paul is saying now, the woman can say to the husband, this is what you can and can't do with your body. You see women beginning to assume roles and functions that were once not allowed to have in the Bible. So for instance, in Romans 16, is a classic passage whereby Phoebe in Romans 16 is referred by Paul as a deacon. Something scripture is silent about till now. You also have women who are teachers like Priscilla. What we are seeing here is the freedom that was once not there for women to operate in their gifting within the, the church context. When you look at the ministry of Jesus and Paul, one, one can't ignore the fact that in the new covenant, things are beginning to change for the better. As in, the pendulum is not swinging to the far right or the far left, but to the center. Both Jesus and Paul do and say certain things to suggest that a new era has dawned in which a change of thinking needs to take place. Male and female can work together without any superiority or inferiority and without blurring the gender lines. Both are celebrated as two equal members of the kingdom of God. Let us deal with two, what I'll call two most difficult passages in the scriptures. And let me say this. As I put this together, one of the things I've done is I've drawn and read a lot of books. So one of the things you could do straight after this is to try and give me a book and say, why don't you read this? Have you read that? I have done a lot of that. And also, I want to really look at the text as it is as well. The first difficult passage to read is 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 34 to verse 36. This is what it says. It says, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. What a passage cannot mean is that women must not speak at all during the service. Because if Paul was to say that that is the reality, 
then we would say he'll be contradicting himself because when you read 1 Corinthians 11, Paul seems to be alluding to the fact that women are prophesying and speaking and doing everything. So surely that's not what Paul is saying. What is he saying then? In 1 Corinthians 14, it seems here you have women who are disrupting the service by asking questions during the service. Remember, the first century meetings were not like our meetings as we have right now. Churches, we used to meet in homes in a smaller context, not in public meetings like this, because Christianity was not called a, a religion, it was called a sect. And any such big meetings would have brought threat to the authorities of the day. But Paul is saying here that as you come together, this, this, do not disrupt the meeting by asking a lot of questions during the time when worship is taking place. This should not refer to the classic public speaking as we now know it. Instead, it is referring to any disruption. It is shameful for them to be asking questions all the time as it dis disrupts the flow of the meeting. Verse 40 shares lies to this because it says, let all things be done decently and in order which could be taken to suggest that Paul is actually trying to help the church to order their meetings well, which means any disruption, such as is found in this passage, is not a decent behavior in the church. A worship session cannot be a Q&A session. This should be viewed, I suggest, as a correction of a specific problem rather than a burning of women, which means it's fine for women to speak as long as it is done in, in a decent and orderly fashion. For God, the God we serve is the God of order and not chaos. And let me say why. Because if you read around the text, you realize Paul is beginning to shape the way worship works and functions in a public meeting when people come together. The second passage that is very difficult is 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 and 15. There are two ways of interpreting this, which I will call the textual and the historical. What do I mean by that? I'll make it as in reading the text, interpreting it, but also going through the historical background and finding out what was happening around that time. And I'll do a whistle-stop tour on the historical background, but really will try to do justice to the text as it is. We gotta remember that first and second Timothy were written to Timothy. And Paul is not thinking about teaching as in I'm going to teach tomorrow or I'm just going to teach at the life group or city group. The teaching that Paul is thinking about is teaching which I would say with capital T. And why is that, am I saying that? It's teaching that Paul would refer to as the whole counsel of God, if you like. That, has, that needs to be passed on from generation to generation. Because you notice as you read the whole of this uh, book that he speaks about, he gives in some occasions certain words that are given definite articles before them, like their faith, their truth, their sound doctrine, their teaching, and their good deposit, rather than a teaching, a good faith, a sound doctrine. The command then in 1 Timothy 2 should be read in this light. This is not talking about simply teaching someone else, but passing on sound doctrine. 
This is the same role that was given, I would suggest, to Adam to pass on God's teaching to his wife as the head of his marriage. Paul maintains that the reason that women should not have authority over men is because of the created order. Adam was created first and then Eve. This highlights an important difference in roles, although not in value, between men and women. When the serpent in Genesis approached Eve, he undermined the pattern of male headship by interacting only with Eve. Adam was present throughout this time, but did not intervene, neglecting his role as head of the marriage. Male leadership was challenged, and God's ordained order was undermined. Even so, and with the curses later that was given in Genesis 3, God's ordained order right now has not changed. As Ephesians 5.23 tells us, it spells it out, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. The resulting curse for women was concerned with a wife's desire to usurp husband's authority and her husband's desire to rule over her in an unreasonable manner. That's Genesis 3.16, which then says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This unhealthy expression of relationships that we see in Genesis within marriage was undone by the setting of the teaching that we see in Ephesians 5, where Paul begins to say, now, talking about husband, love, uh, submit to your husband, love your wife, and wife, submit to your husband, as in the Lord, because Christ is the head. And this speaks not just of love and submission, but a sac- uh, such that is done in a sacrificial way. So that there's no exercising of authority in an unreasonable way. So, for instance, if you read verse 15 of First Timothy 2, this is probably one of the most tricky passages in, I've ever come across. I'll be interested to know how you would translate this one. It says, but women will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Number one, this passage cannot mean saved as in receiving salvation. Because if that's what it meant, it would mean that most of you ladies who do not have children yet and are believers in Christ are not saved. So surely that's not what the passage is really saying. Are we concluding that together? All right. Could it be referring back to the curse then? Because here Paul is beginning to deal with the background of Genesis as well. He's grounding everything in Genesis as well. So pain, listen to this, pain in childbearing was part of the curse on women, which also included the phrase previously mentioned about the wife's desire being for her husband. By continuing in faith, love and holiness with propriety is a woman's being saved from the effects of the curse, which gives her a tendency to desire to usurp male authority. If so, here is a big question. Could a submitted woman who is not desirous of taking authority over man be trusted 
to take a position of responsibility? That's a question I leave with you. Secondly, let's look at the historical in this passage. There are certain things worth thinking about when it comes to the passage. And this is it from a historical point of view. When this was written, Paul wrote this passage and he wrote this letter not to a church but to a man. And this man's name is Timothy. And he's instructing Timothy about the context in Ephesus. And let me remind you historically what was happening in Ephesus around that time. Ephesus was a great city, as we know. But if you read Acts 19 and Acts 20, they tell us that Ephesus was a city whereby Artemis, her name is Di- was also called Diana, she was worshipped in Ephesus. And one of the things that most historians would say was because you had to be a woman to be a priest at the temple of Artemis, there were certain women who would get saved from the background of, 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 of Diana because that's where there was power and authority. And by the way, in the worship of Artemis, men were treated as second class. But now Paul is saying things have changed in that there is leadership in the church that is not just you do whatever you feel is right. Historically, that's how people will look at it. The things Paul is saying, things have changed, things are different in Christ. And also, it's worth recognizing when you do background that this letter It's not just like any other letter, but it's a pastoral epistle, and he's addressing Timothy, not the church. Paul here does not seem to assume that women can be elders. It seems this office is reserved for certain men who are anointed by God and set apart to direct, discipline, disciple, and set doctrine in the church. The very thing that I'm trying to do with you today. That is a, it's, a, it's something that is left, not for any man, not for anyone else, but for church eldership. Which means, if you look at the two passages, they seem to be specific and dealing with specific issues within their context. What about those passages that we never talk about that we seem to overlook because they do not seem to be evoking the word, maybe preaching? And let me start with Romans 12. This is what it says. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. It is widely agreed that Paul wrote Romans before he could even visit Rome. So here's my view. If Paul wanted the church to know that there's one particular ministry that is only reserved for certain people in the church, particularly based on gender, he would have made it very clear. Because he's writing to a church that he's never visited before, although he knows certain people there, if you read Romans 16, it tells you that, he knows certain people there. If he wanted them to know that this is a specific thing of instruction that do not ever, 
in your life, let a woman teach and speak at all, he would have said so. But the word there, which means teaching, didache, is, it actually is referring to the public teaching of the word. The second one is First uh, Corinthians 11. It says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors the head. It is the same as having her head shaved. (laughs) All right, ladies, wear your hats. (laughs) Although the focus here seems to be on something else, this passage is nevertheless very helpful for us in assisting us with the topic at hand. The reason for that is because it seems to be throwing cold water on certain passages that are saying women cannot speak at all. It seems to me like a good opportunity for Paul to use his apostolic authority to speak into this context, to address an issue such as this, but he doesn't seem to do that. He's very silent. Is Paul inconsistent in the way that he bring, he leads churches, that he will say something to the Corinthians, something else to the Ephesians, and something else to the, uh, uh, the Romans? No, Paul is a very consistent writer. So then, that means that's ruled out. Besides that, if you claim that that passage means what it means, then it's important for us to recognize that today we should be considering that all women wear hats which is not the case. Colossians 3.16, let the message of Christ dwell among you, among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. By the way, this, what I'm reading to you is a summary of a lengthy, lengthy engagement. This is, this is one of what, what you'll call a one another passages, it says that we are to teach one another. We are to admonish one another with no particular gender preference or bias. You've got to take this passage at face value. You can't assume it's talking about men teaching women or the other way around. Paul seems to be more interested in how the body ought to function and less on who gets to do what. He is speaking to both men and women in Colossae. It is right to assume that Paul is taking this for granted that women would have to participate in the teaching of one another. Galatians 3.28, this is my last passage that I'm using. It says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. If you read in the Greek, it changes this, no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. What does this mean? It means God has one family and not two. And this family consists of all those who believe in the Lord Jesus without any discrimination or differentiation. This has nothing to do with how we relate on a family level. It's all to do with how God sees us which means the ground is even at the foot of the cross. The reason Paul says no female, no male in Greek is because Paul is thinking about Genesis 1, 
where the Bible talks about he made, he made male and female in his own image. If we take away, or we think Paul is trying to say, no, 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 there are no gender differences here, it's okay, we will be suggesting that we should see ourselves as hermaphrodites. You know what a hermaphrodite is? It's a plant or an animal or a person who has both sexes. Now, but Paul is not doing that. And besides, if he was alluding to that, then that will not be a biblical, theological understanding, but it will be an agnostic view, because the agnostics never believed in male and female. They just said, let's all blend together, that there will be no male and no female. But Paul is very clear, even as he's addressing people, that he recognizes these differences, but we are one because we are both made in the image of God. I believe Paul is thinking of Genesis 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In, his, in, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Paul is doing away, I would suggest here, with quite a, quite a couple of things. And I'm, I'll tell you what he's doing away with. Some of it is going to shock you. The first thing I feel he's doing away with is circumcision. And the second thing I think he's doing away with is a traditional Jewish prayer which said and suggested and assumed that women were second class. And I'll tell you why. This Jewish prayer, which is still being prayed in synagogues now, goes like this. And it's prayed by men first, and the women will speak afterwards. Let me say this. Do not repeat this one after me. It goes like this, and it's there in the Talmud, even in our time, it says, God, I thank you, you've not made me a Gentile. I thank you, you've not made me a slave. Because remember what his Paul is saying here, and remember what the Talmud goes like? God, I thank you, you've not made me a Gentile. I thank you, you've not made me a slave. <laughs> These are men. And then he says, and I thank you, you've not made me a woman. Listen to this. After this, women should go and say, shall we start a song like this? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> After which the woman will say, God, I thank you. You've made me according to your will. Okay. I think <laughs> I shall leave that one out. So Paul is doing away with this and said, no, 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 no. It's not like that. You, that men have to come and thank God that, oh, I'm so glad I'm not a woman. We are one in Christ. Number two, I said to you, Paul is doing, he's dealing with circumcision. We sometimes think circumcision was just a painful obstacle. Yes, it was. But... It was also done with pride, and it was considered a privilege because it makes you a Jew. It did, it did not just mark out Jew and Gentile, but it also circumcision also privileged man or male over female. Imagine how revolutionary baptism became as it brought everyone to the same level, slave, free, male, female, etc. 
which means a woman who is baptized stands on the same ground or on a par as a man who is baptized because it's no longer circumcision. It's now baptism. We go under the same water. It is fairly conclusive based on all these passages that Paul seems, sees women and men as equal before God. He wants to see them function in the church of God as equal. However, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul seems to be this seems to be a unique case in that it is written for pastoral ministry. What am I picking up from all these particular verses? This is what I'm picking up. That certain men take the responsibility for leading the church as elders. Not any man can be an elder. Also, the spiritual gifts that are given in the church, including that of communicating the word of God publicly with clarity to equip, illustrate, and exhort are given to men and women as well. Another thought from a practical point of view is that if we really want to be equipped in the word of God and exhorted, there are certain things that only women can understand and be able to articulate that men can't. And I, the reason I'm saying this is because in my old church, I remember we were dealing with what we don't deal with here with the subject of abortion. Even though we could quote scripture and do everything, we had to ask around and look for the people who would understand this. And when they stand there and say, I know this is my right, but actually I believe this is what God created. Everyone could listen better than listening to me. In order to level the playing field, we can have men and women preach and bring the word of God in whatever context, as long as we are settled one of the, we settle one of the fundamental issues, and that is eldership is always male. Now, you can question me on the word teaching in the Bible. Can a woman preach on a Friday? And that's what I want to deal with for about two minutes. What actually is happening in the pulpit on a Friday morning? <laughs> it's not an easy one to, to answer, by the way. We have many different words to talk about pulpit moment. We can call it a talk, what I'm doing now, a message, a preach, a word, or a homily. Some like, to call, some, some like to use the word talk, some like to use the word preach. There are many different words, unfortunately, that are used for speech acts in the New Testament. And it's not only preaching or teaching. So, for instance, in Matthew, 20, in Matthew 4 and 1 Timothy 1, teaching and preaching. 1 Thessalonians 2, proclaiming. 1 Corinthians 11, prophesying. Acts 13, word of encouragement. Romans 12, exhortation. Titus 2, rebuking. And speaking as well. Interestingly, the Puritans never used the word preaching or teaching. They used the word prophesying. All of, all of this is to say that what is actually happening in the pulpit on a Friday is not as black and white as we think. It is vital for God's church, but we must be careful that we do not define it too narrowly. Some sermons might be more teaching and less prophesying. Some might be more proclamation and less teaching. Some might be more exhortation and less rebuking. 
This shows that to teach in 1 Timothy 2 is not the only type of teaching that exists. So, teaching. The word teaching in the New Testament and words that surround this word are used in two, what I would suggest, two noticeable ways. One, it seems to be something that lots and lots of people can do based on their gifting, which their gifting would be teaching, like Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 14, and Hebrews 5. Secondly, you also have these verses like 1 Timothy 2 that say, I do not permit a woman to teach, that seem to be very specific in dealing with bigger doctrines of the church that require things like defining the church stance on a particular issue or bringing correction and discipline in certain things, which I believe it's an eldership responsibility. So, this means there's what you, I, I would, I'm coining this as I go along, what I will call a pastoral epistle teaching and what I will also call a non-pastoral epistle teaching. What do I mean by that? A first Timothy, Titus, second Timothy type teaching, the way Paul is talking here to the leaders, and also that kind of teaching that can happen and be done by anyone and everyone. In conclusion, you probably think, ah, The New Testament, listen to this because this defines everything. The New Testament helps us to understand a gender revolution that took place in the first century through the demonstration and teachings of the gospel of the kingdom of God reflected in the ministry and teachings of Jesus and Paul. Men and women are equal before God and our approach to ministry should reflect this. Women are gifted in teaching the same way as men because God does not show partiality when it comes to spiritual gifts. There seems to be in the Bible at least two types of teaching for when believers come together. The pastoral, which is dealing with the things that I've already alluded to, and the non-pastoral, which is something that many can do. Pastoral teaching and non-pastoral can both happen in different contexts in the church, including Friday morning. Pastoral teaching, such as is talked about in pastoral epistles, should be the responsibility of the elders. We are the same before God, one in Christ, male and female, bought with the precious blood of God, and now entrusted with the image that we bear, which is the image of God, entrusted with the message of the gospel, the message of truth, to take these measures to the world. The church is full of bickering and moaning and fighting within itself instead of proclaiming the gospel. It is time for the church to release the gifts within the body of Christ to function and to serve to fulfill the call of God in the kingdom of God, which includes male and female before God. We still very much believe that headship in the home and eldership in the church is by Gifted male leaders. Let us all stand. I want you to know that this process was probably one of the hardest. This was not an easy thing for us to engage in. And even as we listen sometimes, 
we can use our old filters as things have been said, or we can use cultural filters to try and understand what's been said. I will say to you, we need the Holy Spirit to bring us before God, which means, like me, and I will call on many here, like me, I've had to really go back to the text, the text and really begin to rediscover truth as it appears in the Bible. And I will say this, that one of the things I recognize is that as a leadership, we really want to come under the authority of Scripture and not undermine it, but also we don't want to do a whistle-stop to over Scripture. We really want to engage with the text and find out what God is saying to us. Should you, through what I said, have any questions or want to sit down with me and engage textually, by the way, I'm happy for you to do that. But I will say that what I've just concluded, what I've just said today is that this is what we've concluded and where we've come to as the leadership of the church. And I want to pray for the grace of God to come upon us, to help us, to sustain us, to take us to the next level as a church in this time. Let's all close our eyes. Father God, we thank you so much for brothers and sisters who are not even here now, who have really been so helpful to us. We thank you for the church. Lord, we know even here what I've said, people might say, you're not going far enough. And some are saying, you're going too far. <laughs> but Lord, we... We want to go to the scripture, not anywhere else. And I pray today that my cultural or my background or the way I've always seen things, Lord, if it comes in the way of scripture, Lord, I pray may not cloud the reading of scripture. I want to pray for each one of us today. The Lord Jesus, help us as a church to come under the authority of Scripture. I pray, Lord, that we may not be people majoring just with one text or just majoring with one particular thing, but we may be a people who are released to function, but also who are released to see the Bible as God's authority over the church. And I pray today that Lord Jesus help us to come under the authority of Scripture and give us all grace, enough grace, that, Lord, even as we begin to interpret, even as we begin to celebrate all that you are doing in City Hill, that we'll celebrate as one new humanity in Christ. Lord, I thank you for your grace, and I thank you for your church, and I pray today, Lord, I pray, I pray, I want to pray for ladies, Lord. I want to ask, Lord, that for those who for years and years have felt a sense maybe of oppression in the church, I want to pray today that you bring healing right now. I want to ask, Lord, bring healing. Lord, I pray on behalf of the church. I want to say I'm so sorry. Lord, that there have been times when we've turned a blind eye based on what we've always thought rather than going back to the task. And I pray today, Lord, would you take that away for the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to humble ourselves before you. It's not about pride. It's about a sense of humility before you. 
I thank you, Jesus, for every woman that you have really spent time with and really <laughs> brought such incredible dignity to. And Lord, I pray today you would do the same with every woman in this church. Father, I want to pray for every man here. Lord, I pray that our pride will not get in the way. I want to ask, Lord, if there's anything in my heart, any sense of pride, I pray, make us mighty men. Men who are humble, men who are teachable, and men who really love Jesus and are willing to submit under the authority of Christ. Lord, nowadays we don't get real men anymore. At least in the world. There's a lot of oppression that comes through men. There's a lot of power that's exercised in an ungodly way. I pray that will not be with us. That, Lord, you raise up men who are caring and loving, who are in their homes, the herd of the home, and, Lord, who love and care for their families. And, Lord, who will not just say, I believe so and I'm going to do this, but who will say, I really want to submit under the authority of Scripture because I love God and I want to serve Him. I pray even as Andrew gathers men, Lord, to look at the Bible together, I pray, Father God, you will gather many men who will really rise in City Hill to really take your gospel to the nations. I ask this, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Visit www.cityhillglobal.com to find out more about City Hill Church. Thank you.